This is the Movie Hall of Fame class of Paul Schrader, and there he is across the table from me. Call him any, any time. It's Adam Hall. Hello. What's happening, my guy? I'm a little tired. My lungs are filled with smoke. Yeah. It's been a rough one. It's judgment day out there, boys and girls. I had a hell of a day, though. I mean, I've been just fucking exhausted. I mean, I was in New Haven all day, and I drove back to work, and then I drove out to meet up with Abby to look at a house, and then I came straight from that, looked at two houses, came back here. Uh, and now I got to talk about fucking Paul Schrader movies. You're becoming a Paul Schrader character right in front of my eyes right now. I'm so lonely. Some might call you a light sleeper. <laughs> I don't sleep, Nico. Yeah, exactly. I haven't slept in months. All I do is look outside and just see the scum of the earth. Oh, my little difficult man in the room. There he is right there. Adam lonely Hall. man. I am the lonely man here. So, Master Gardener. Yes. Out on VOD this week. Um... I watched it. Oh, you did watch it. <laughs> I, did. I didn't know that. <laughs> Lovely. It just dropped last night, so I kind of squeezed it in at the last second here. But uh, I watched it, and so I got to thinking, wait a minute, we haven't covered much of the directorial work of Paul Schrader so far on this pod. Okay. So this was a good opportunity to go back, because obviously we've talked about Taxi Driver and Raging Bull and stuff, all of his Scorsese collaborations, but... The man is actually quite a prolific director in his own right. Very fascinating. One one kind of director I was not prepared for. I, I sort of had uh, built up my expectations on Paul Schrader and all of his interests and sort of thought I knew what each of these films were going to be. And to a certain extent, some of them satisfied those expectations. And then others were just like, whoa, 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 what is this? He's very prolific and very dynamic and different and kind of exists in a camp that I just didn't think he existed in, particularly with his eighties films. Yeah. I mean, this guy has a populist edge to him that I was really not prepared for. Yes. So interesting experience with pretty much all of these movies. Totally. Yeah. You wonder if that's the consequence of the concessions that he had to make early on in his career or if you're right or if he is such like a gifted entertainer i think there are sure you know you hear these stories of of how the taxi driver ending was changed in order to satisfy the studio you know and you know the the end of rolling thunder being as radically different in the final product as it was in the first draft it's another one i wanted to bring up yeah yeah, so like you do wonder, is this the consequence of the studio or, you know, how much of this is actual uncut, unfettered Schrader? You know, because when you do get uncut, unfettered Schrader, the results are kind of mixed, I would say. This is a weird one where it's like, there's maybe one or two that I love, but yeah. I'm, I'm not like in love with his movies. I will yeah. say, I will certainly say that. I have like mild hangups with a, with a few of them, I guess. I was more just fascinated by like what he was producing here and kind of not ready for it, particularly with cat people. Well, yeah. I mean, that's a movie. We'll talk about it when we get to it, but he didn't write that script. He was approached as like the second choice as the director on that thing. You would not, you know, necessarily think of Paul Schrader at the top of your mind when you're looking to make a remake of Cat People. That's probably the better version of his Exorcist prequel. Oh, God. Which you've seen, right? Yeah, I have seen that one. Yeah, yeah I've made you watch it and then I didn't hold up my end of the bargain. Fucker. That's right, yeah. <laughs> but that's not a good movie. It's unmistakably a Paul Schrader movie. So sure. I, so I give it that and I suppose I admire it for that, but that is not a good movie. Yeah, I mean, you're just never gonna get the, like, the, the perfect 
steward for your intellectual property in Paul Schrader. You know what I mean? You're just not going to get the guy to do the job and keep a franchise going or to reboot, uh, you know, a script that's been sitting on the shelf sure. for 20 or 30 years. No idea what you're in for. Right. Cause like his approach changes so wildly. Like he changed so like with this movie, I'm going to be big and expensive and showy. And then other times I've, it feels like he's cutting corners. Yes weirdly where it doesn't even seem like he needs to cut certain corners. I don't know. It's I, maybe part of it is just w- seeing uh first reform in the card counter prior to this and kind of getting a sense of like where his heart is really at. Right. Uh, well, the, and that is late, 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 late period where he Schrader. just doesn't give a fuck. Yeah. I mean, this is late seventies. He's in his early eighties now when, when he's making master gardener. And yeah. Yeah. I think, he has been, I think in in a way that Wes Anderson has been as well, kind of on the internet lampooned as this one trick pony. And we're covering the first five movies in his career today. And I think if you watch these before you watched whatever he's calling this trilogy of movies that he just completed now, yeah. you would have a much different impression of who the guy truly is as a filmmaker yeah that's i was kind of i took a lot away from this learned a lot about him yeah because i mean i didn't i haven't seen master gardener i love first reform and i'm not really crazy about card counter but i don't know what did you think about master gardener i'll give you just a little bit of what this movie is oh lovely so credits roll animations of flowers we fade in (laughs) joel edgerton in a darkly lit, mostly empty room, journaling. <laughs> it is the first shot of the movie. It's not just in there in the middle. Adam, just getting straight to it, it is now. The fir- like, it's the first time that I saw that in a Schrader movie, and I'm like, oh, he's trolling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, it's finally, like, he's on Facebook. Like, he's plugged in. The guy is, you know, he knows what people think about him. He's clearly read the reviews for his other movies. And he's like, I'm, I'm opening with myself journaling. Uh, Joel Edgerton is playing a character. Let me, I wrote this down. Good God. Is playing a character by the name of Narvel Roth. Narvel. <laughs> that is the most like <laughs> Cormac McCarthy character totally. name I've ever fucking heard. You're damn right it is. <laughs> Narvel Roth is a former skinhead with Nazi and white power tattoos all over his quite ripped body okay who is also a hitman who has participated in several hate crimes in the past who is now in witness protection gardening at an estate owned and operated by sigourney weaver's character wow and he's a gardener that journals late at night mostly about flowers and horticulture from what i can tell because all of the vo is about flowers. I'm not kidding you, Adam. There is a line in the narration for this movie that's like, the rush that you get from smelling a flower is the same as the rush of pulling the trigger. What the hell? What the hell is that? What the (laughs) hell is even that? (laughs) Bro, Sigourney Weaver's character gets mad at him at one point. And says to him, like, I knew you had a green thumb. What I didn't know is that the thumb was a middle finger. Oh, no. <laughs> so you love the movie? I fucking love it. Uh, of I course see, I, see. I, I see, I see. This... <laughs> 
The movie sounds like shit to me. Marvel Ross sounds like garbage to me. Like it's comical. Like it's a parody of a Paul Schrader movie. <laughs> That's is what, what it is. Like it is unbelievable the swings he takes. At the same time, though, he's got that fucking Brassanian slow cinema vibe thing that I just love. I don't know. Like, I love it. Like, listen, if you did not like the card counter, which I know you had sort of mixed thoughts on to negative thoughts on, I guess, uh, you're going to hate this one. Like, it's not getting any better from here on out. It is in the same vein as the other two. This one just takes, like ridiculous swings like it is so fucking on the nose <laughs> um i mean this man could not be more evil of a guy and he could not love gardening anymore wow he is indeed a master gardener does it make you feel like a master gardener this movie um what do you think Nico? i learned a little bit about gardening yeah i learned what deadheading was and, uh, you know what loam was that was cool He's going full Schrader. You know full what I mean? Schrader. He's going full Schrader. And oh, it's like, boy. there's no pretending that he's making movies for anyone other than himself at this point. There is a movie on this list that is was almost too much Schrader for me to handle. Really? I liked it, but like, whoa, 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 yeah. whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. 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 Master Gardener. It is the weakest of this new trilogy. Okay. I will say that. It is definitely the weakest. Um, and yeah, Sigourney Weaver is pitched to a really odd note. I, it, she's she's weird. She's really strange in this. And uh, Edgerton, I would say, is probably the least successful leading man oh. in this trilogy. Yes, by far. I Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I feel like Ethan Hawke knew exactly what Schrader was going for in First Reformed. There's not much wrong with First Reformed. I yeah. like that movie a lot. Yeah, I don't think they're that much different. It's just like... Yeah, I don't know. Something about the casting, too. That was part of the problem I had with some of the characters in... Um, well, Tiffany Haddish in the character counter, yeah. It doesn't work. Like, like right. it's just, if you don't understand this, it's that same mammoth problem. If you don't understand the material, it's just not going to sound good. Right, 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 right. Yeah, some guys just, like, know how to... Like, Ed Bagley Jr. is in, like, almost all of these movies. Maybe four of them, three out of the four of them. That's a guy that has clearly worked with Schrader several times, and, like, Schrader's like, I can put my words in that guy's mouth. When he plays the notes, it sounds good. Yeah, his Philip Seymour Hoffman for PTA and sure. that kind of guy, yeah. Right, and yeah, you're right. Like if like Sigourney Weaver, I think in this case, was like radically miscast. Okay, ooh, that's too bad. Yeah, and I think like, yeah, you're right. I think you need a, a guy or gal that can is on the same wavelength as the dude. I don't know. I, don't, I just like the vibes. Yeah, you're a Schrader, you're Schrader guy, yeah. I am. I'm a Schrader guy. I mean, I like all these movies we're going to talk about, so I guess I'm a Schrader guy, too, and I love his written works. How many movies, if you had to guess, do you think he directed in his career? Isn't it 24? It's 23. 23? Uh, but yeah, there you go. I, I was surprised by that. Kind of surprised that he would even take on a movie that he didn't write. Like that, when looking at Cat People and seeing that he didn't write, that really shocked me because he just doesn't come across as the figure that would want anything to do with material that's not his own. Sure. And I think at times it's like you're just not the right man for the job. I sure. think that's happened several times in his career. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But he's a good director. He's very good director. Yeah. But he needs to like the project. I'm sure there's projects he just took for the money. Yes. I know one of the movies on this list, even though it's actually one of my favorite movies on the list, he fucking hated making. Yeah. One of the worst. He, he, he hated it so much he considered quitting. It is but a comically messy production like it's so like the stories you hear it's like that happened in a professional workplace yeah yeah again not his fault when you put those people in a room it's like what sure. the hell do you expect is exactly. gonna happen it's yeah just, right, right, right but 
It's an OSHA violation putting them together. <laughs> Everyone should be in prison. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Schrader, uh, born in Grand Rapids, Michigan, like some of the characters in his movies that we're going to talk about today, started as a film critic. Yep, was a protege of Pauline Kael. Transitions into screenwriting in his late twenties. Hangs out with the film brats. Writes Obsession for Brian De Palma. Writes Taxi Driver for Scorsese. Eventually parlays that into a directorial career of his own. Still works with Scorsese here and there. Still works with some of those directors that he came up with. In my opinion, he has Scorsese's two best films. My my personal two favorite films by him. I know you're not crazy about Last Temptation of Christ, but I really like that movie. I like Bringing Out the Dead. Yeah, Bringing Out the Dead is sweet. Yeah, Yeah. That's a weird, I always forget that that's him, but yeah. Did not see a movie until the age of 17. What? Yeah. Why? We're going to talk about this a lot more in, in the hardcore conversation, but yeah. uh, he was raised heavily Calvinist. Yep. And uh, yeah, movies were not a thing allowed under his religious beliefs, I guess. So parents, like, if you if you shelter your kids... <laughs> this is what you get. The right fucking taxi driver. <laughs> All these years later, <laughs> he writes fucking naval. What's his name? What's the guy's name? I don't fucking remember. <laughs> I've already forgotten. Yeah. These are the most, yeah, he writes some of the most miserable, difficult man movies of all time. Right. Which are the movies that kind of define the 70s, but the thing is he kept making them. I know. You know, while all his contemporaries kind of stopped making those kinds of movies and they moved on to other things, whereas he just keeps making the same movies he was making in the 70s and, you know, culture kind of ages past him and he's still stuck doing these. And, like, that is kind of respectable, you know what I mean? Like, his commitment to this very slow, dour, cold style. That's okay. I mean, it's not, it, these are types of movies that I've always loved, I've always wanted more of, so I'm, you know, I'm happy he's stuck with it. Some of the things we did not nominate, again, we're, we nominated his first five movies, Blue Collar, Hardcore, American Gigolo, Cat People, and Mishima Life in Four Chapters. Those are the five nominees. No, I'm going to be honest. My favorite movie by his is not on this list. First Reformed is your number one. I think it is. I love First Reformed. You can make the case. It's kind of banned, though, right? We don't like induct it's, movies. It's a little too soon for that one. A little one, too yeah. soon, yeah. We, we put a we put a eligibility window in there. Yeah, it might be. We did not nominate a Light Sleeper from 92, which is the first of his journaling difficult man movies kind of that sets the archetype that he's going to go to years and years and years later. Man, I don't want to step foot in that guy's bedroom and just see walls of journals <laughs> <laughs> just indiscriminately <laughs> categorized all over. Uh, Affliction from 97 is the Nick Nolte crime movie that was kind of considered his big comeback. Mm -hmm. uh, Autofocus from 2002 based on the real life story of uh, the guy from Hogan's Heroes that got killed, right? Yeah, Bob Crane. Bob Crane. I've yeah. always wanted to see that movie. Apparently it's very good. Yeah, sometimes you just like see a real life story and you're like well that's a schrader movie yeah <laughs> you know, like well that guy that's a that's a weird creepy upsetting story too yeah, yeah. i don't like that story but it but it yeah it fits especially after watching hardcore right Oof. it's like that like patty hearst is another one like girl gets kidnapped and then becomes a radical terrorist it's like all of these things it's like oh my god like schrader like literally the reality is writing scripts for paul schrader right now <laughs> it's like chill out bro um, oh boy yeah, we didn't do his recent Difficult Man trilogy, uh, The Canyons from 2013, the Lindsay Lohan uh, 
disaster. Uh, listen, there there are some bad ones in there. I'm not gonna lie; they're not all winners. I mean, it's he's just too of a, too much of a loose cannon in a way. I mean, of yeah. course, there's gonna be some bad ones, you yeah. know. But he is also like, you know, he has a lot of integrity in his artistry, and sometimes that results in some flops. Sure, that's okay though. That's yeah. perfectly okay, just as long as he's allowed to keep making movies. That's all that matters. All right, let's start with Blue Collar from 1978. Trader co-wrote this thing with Leonard Trader, his brother, who is a frequent collaborator of his. It stars Richard Pryor, Harvey Keitel, and Yafet Koto. When three workers try to steal from the local union, they instead discover corruption and decide to use this information for blackmail. Mm. One of the angriest movies I've ever seen. Yeah, this movie needs to chill the hell out. Just like so rageful and just, angry. Just guys, calm down. I know life sucks because you're working in a fucking car factory in Detroit. Yeah. I get it, but calm down. It is a movie that is so angry and has so many gripes with the world, but just like no answers. Yeah, exactly. Like it just directs its anger in a million different directions. Like it's the union and or it's racism <laughs> or it's the government or it's the police. Yep, yep, like, yep, yep, yep. Just, it is angry in every rich direction yep. and Schrader does not attempt to rein any of that in. No, weirdly, like I, I couldn't find the answers, and by the end of it, there really aren't many answers either. It's just as bleak as it was at the beginning of the movie. Sure, uh, I was in it immediately just by the the needle drop because the needle drop is kind Captain of Beefheart. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, that was the theater. <laughs> yeah, fucking Captain Beefheart, hardworking man. Oh my god, <laughs> Captain Beefheart. But it comes. It's weird because it comes off. As like this vibey like thing that's kind of cool and of the time and like fucking American. Sure. And it also sounds like machinery and it sounds like the most empty thing you've ever heard. Right. Hearing it at first, I'm like, this doesn't work for this setting. And then it just started to work beautifully and I just got it. And it was like, oh, it just completely encapsulates just the soullessness of the world yeah. in, in, in this where it just the music just stops and it just sounds like metal compressors. Yeah. I'm just like, oh, we're in this kind of movie. It's going to be this bleak. It's going to be this hard and just unforgiving. Yeah. And everyone's going to be awful by the end of it. I just know it. And sure enough, <laughs> everyone's in just a, I, you could argue, a much worse place. Oh, no question. <laughs> a much worse place. Yeah, fighting the institutions only tears you apart at the seams. Like yeah. that's, that's what you learn is that the more that you fight it, mm -hmm. the more that they will redirect your anger yeah. somewhere else yeah, it's just something that doesn't hurt them yeah uh there's that line they pit us against each other just to keep us on the line you know yeah. what i mean great like, line what, yeah uh there's a lot of great lines like that but like by the end of it these two guys Kaitel and Pryor, have lost their souls in different ways they've made yep. different decisions along the way but they've both ended up in the same spot yep Pryor's also really good in this yep i don't know what you think of Pryor generally in movies um well, he's mostly just playing himself. Yeah, that's the thing. It's in his like, comedies, at least. Sure, certainly. You certainly. Know, I'm not a big fan of like The Toy or um, Brewster's Millions or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, he's usually just playing Richard Pryor in movies. Yeah. Occasionally, you get a Lost Highway. Yes. You yes, know, yes. occasionally, and he's really good in that. But that's because like Lynch uses him well. But yeah, like he's got the dramatic chops here. 
it's so funny that poster for this movie. Oh yeah, just him yelling. It's two pictures of him. Kaitel is not even featured on the poster. No. Like that's how big a star prior is at the time. And there's this big um, block lettering from a New York Times review. It quotes a New York Times review. Richard Pryor has a role that makes use of the wit and fury that distinguishes his straight comedy routines. Yep. Yeah, that, that's on there just to be like, hey, Richard Pryor's in a movie and he's good in it. Yep. Uh, but that's exactly how I felt about the movie. It's like the anger in your comedy. <laughs> that sort of like unbridled, uncontainable rage is the thing that made him a superstar. And this movie weaponizes that so fucking well. Well, you can imagine like almost imagining this is Richard Pryor, like when he's not on stage, yes. which is really disturbing because like he is so just terrible in this movie. So on a scene by in, in really weird, depraved ways, like, like where he's trying to get the kids. Did you think that you thought that that was like scummy? Hmm. Because I, I I look at that scene, I'm like, that's hilarious. I, this is a, one of those movies that is deeply uncomfortable for me. I'm not re- I didn't find it that funny. I found it like really, really upsetting. I'm not sure I would describe him as like a scummy person in that scene. It was just more like, look what he's forced to do. It's yes, just like, right. oh my God, he has fucking nothing. And I just love the dialogue when he's talking about like, when all is said and done, I only have 32 bucks in my pocket. I'm just like, sure. for me, it, it never came off as funny. It came off as like what it was. It was just this desperate story of a guy forced to do desperate terrible things sometimes you know yeah i guess my one thing about it is that like sometimes tonally it's a little funny like because you get those scenes and i'm just like jesus this is a hard scene for me to watch sometimes and then you get to them where they're like robbing the bank or the robbing the vault rather and they they have the googly eyes i'm like the disguises yeah like what okay a weird choice. There's lots of little moments like that or, or little moments of comedy that kind of reflect that similar kind of broad comedy idea that felt maybe a little out of place. It's kind of a nitpick, but I, I just made well, me curious. I mean, you're saying that it's such a hard-boiled story that like yeah. it takes you out of it? Yeah, it took just a little bit. Not not didn't take me out of the movie completely. I would even say I just like, it was just curious and it kind of made me go like, why'd you make that choice? Yeah. Um, I love that shit in, in Trader movies though. And I actually love that. We'll talk about it in, in some of the other movies coming up. But yeah, I love the random little bits of levity included in there. Uh, and I love how that joke, they sort of unfurl that joke. Mm-hmm. I mean, like they don't show you the disguises. Yeah, There's I know. talk of the disguises uh, but they don't show you until they're actually confronted by the security guard. Yeah, it's a ridiculous disguises too. Yeah. No, there's good. There's that. There's like the whole gag with the watches, how they bought like these like oh, these yeah. fake watches on the street mm-hmm. and none of them sync up with each other. Like they're all broken. So they can't get the heist right because the watches aren't synced up correctly. There's that great scene where Pryor goes to the head of the union and the guy gives him like this black handshake, even though like he's like this old buttoned up white man or whatever yeah. with like jowls. Mm-hmm. Like he comes up to him. I think his name is Zeke in the movie Pryor's character. And he gives him like the black handshake. Yep. And it's like so cringy, but like clearly Schrader has like met guys like that oh, in yeah. show business. Mm-hmm. Um, the scene where he's talking to the tax collector and is pretending that all of these children yeah. from the neighborhood are actually his in order to claim the dependents. That was improvised. I don't think that was actually in the script oh, wow. of the movie. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's Pryor just doing his Pryor thing. Yeah, I, I love that shit. Like, if you got Richard Pryor in a movie, like... No, yeah, you gotta let him Let run. him cook. No, I don't have any issue with that. I'm just saying, like, for, for me personally, like, some of the visual gags were just a little funny to me, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. But it's... Yeah, it could work for other people, I guess. Yeah. Uh, maybe more of a me thing. Yeah. Um... Because, I mean, otherwise, like, I don't really have that many complaints about this movie. I think it's actually quite a solid debut, to be honest. Oh, just yeah. a really, like, brutal, confident debut that just 
does not give a fuck. I'm amazed that he wanted, like, with the star power with Richard Pryor to use him this way. I understand, like, he's, like, mostly a victim in a lot of this, but he's a deeply difficult guy to be around the entire movie. Oh, yeah. Like, it's one of those things where you just want to get away from him the second you're, you're in a room with him, me personally, anyway. It's just yeah. like, you're too much emotion for me to handle. It's an amazing performance, but, like, whoa, dude, you got problems. And that was reflective of Keitel's real-life behavior. You hinted at it before, but yep. the behind-the-scenes of this movie is something to behold. Yep. Three main actors did not get along and were continually fighting throughout the shoot. The tension became so great that at one point, Richard Pryor, supposedly in a drug-fueled rage, pointed a gun at Schrader and told him that there was no way he would ever do more than three takes for a scene. Schrader states that during the filming of one take, Harvey Keitel became so irritated by Pryor's lengthy improvisations that he flung the contents of an ashtray into the camera lens, ruining the take. Pryor and his bodyguard responded by pinning Keitel to the floor and pummeling him with their fists. Apparently, Pryor got Keitel back into cocaine also on the set of this movie. Oh, like, my God. Using oh, cocaine. Oh, my God. Here comes Richard Pryor. God, Richard Pryor. <laughs> I think I think the juice was worth the squeeze, personally. I, I, I am, don't know. I am all in on this. <laughs> Absolutely. Not, I'm not a fan of getting someone addicted to drugs for a movie. Well, I guess but. not. But, like, Pryor is sick in this movie, dude. He's he so sick. good in Every, this. Everyone's sick. My favorite performance is not even Pryor, though. It's it's Yafet Koto. Yeah. I fucking love Yafet Koto. Smokey, yeah. He's great in this. He is the best. Now, this is just this great character that I just want every scene to be about too. It's fine. It's fine though. Like he kind of works as a, like a counterbalance to what Richard and Pryor and uh, uh, Harvey Keitel are dealing with. Yeah. That paint scene, is just like kind of etched into my memory. Yeah, now. Spoiler just, alert, but yeah, uh, one of those great, uncomfortable, sad, one of the best death scenes I think I've ever seen. I mean, just prolonged man just goes on and on and on. And you know, what's going to happen right. pretty quickly on in that scene. And it just doesn't stop. It's painful to watch. Yeah. It also like, because it's death by paint. Like it's, the, it's very like colorful. Yeah, exactly. So like it looks cool. Like it looks unlike any death scene you've ever seen before because like it's so bright. Like mm -hmm. this idea like this, this smothering blue is going to kill you. Mm -hmm. It's not a color you normally associate with death like no. if it were red paint for example you're like much different yeah. oh this is a Dario Argento death you yeah. know like w there are so many cinematic signifiers um, to let you know that doom is coming and yeah, for him to just be killed like that, like, yeah, it's inhumane. Like, it feels otherworldly, that death. Yeah, like he's being, like, absorbed by some alien or something. Like yeah, that. yeah, it did. It almost felt like a science fiction thing. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's And it's disgusting. He's, like, drooling blue paint and out of his, his mouth and his nose. It's just like, oh, it's horrifying. Yeah. But it's not one of those deaths you would have really considered. Unless, <laughs> I guess unless you're, you're familiar with this scene. Because I'm assuming something like this must have happened to somebody at some point, too. Yeah, I wonder, thing. yeah. It's one of those things that reminds me of, like, a you hear stories of guys getting like caught in lathes. Yeah. You know, oh yeah. Which is just like, no, right. It's just like a human being should not be like, this should not have happened to a person, but it is. It's like, yeah, a body should not look like that after. Yeah. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. It's just terrible. I think it's great. I think it's like really, really, really good. And I think I'm going to be fighting for it at the end of the discussion today. I don't know exactly which way I'm going. I don't have like a strong preference one way or the other, but I think this is the leader in the clubhouse unless you convince me otherwise as the show goes along. Well, you'll be surprised. Okay. I felt like I've seen every movie like this before, and it, yet it was still quite effective in that Schrader 
way that only he probably would have been able to do. Yeah. I mean, how many movies do you see about like the hard times of the blue collar guy that's fucked up by the man and the system just keeps putting him down. Right. But somehow this felt refreshing to me. Yeah, you're right. It, it also like reaches this poetry at the end too. Like, yeah. There's that one great line where Pryor says to Keitel, he's like, you're my friend, but you're thinking white. When they talk about like the next move in order to take the union down yeah. and how, you know, prior has been offered this high position at the union or like they're paying him off essentially for his silence. It's one fucking line of dialogue that cuts so deep. Yeah. And like a lesser movie would do an entire monologue about that idea. Sure. And he's just very economical in the screenwriting here. You know, there's so many ideas that, he doesn't hit you over the head with, even though like it's a very violent movie verbally. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's incredibly insightful, incredibly incisive. And yeah, the ending is just an all timer. It's just, mm-hmm. it's great. It's like, a great ending. Yeah. yeah. Just watching these, these two guys tear apart at the seams. Turn it off. Turn it off. Turn it off. <laughs> 1979's Hardcore is next, starring George C. Scott, Season Hubley, and my man, my main man, Peter Boyle. Oh, Peter Boyle is <laughs> such a scumbag in this movie. A conservative Midwest businessman ventures into the underworld of pornography in California to look for his runaway teenage daughter who is making porno films in California's porno pits. I feel like I, I need to defend myself. Is that what's coming? Am I going to need to defend myself here? Defend yourself. Yeah, I, I love this movie. I adore this movie. What's I think wrong it's with so it? What do you mean good. you need to defend yourself? No, because even Trader doesn't like it. Really? Schrader, yeah, Schrader says it's like the worst movie he's ever made. Like he hates this movie. Why? And he's like, I would never make it that way today. Uh, yeah, I think like John Milius at the time was like, I really liked the script, but... Turns out Schrader is a shitty director and he just made a lousy movie. Like at the time, like this, this was not considered a, a quality film. What? Because of the content? Like what it's about? I don't know. I think it's just like messy and the climax is loud and it's one of my favorite movies on the list. I fucking love this movie. It could be my favorite movie on the list. It's, yeah. it's very possible. I mean, I guess you could say there's a neatness to the ending i guess in a way and how things kind of like they do sort of work out like i have like tiny little gripes with the girl at the very 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 end and sort of like the way the daughter you mean yeah yeah yeah, the daughter and the the, the way they introduce like the resolution but like this was a frightening movie to me to be perfectly honest Uh like it scared me it's been a long time since i've been like this scared by like the premise and the journey that i was being taken for a movie Uh i just find this world so hellish and uncomfortable and just wrong in every way. It's just the complete lack of humanity <laughs> in this setting just really freaks me out. Yeah. And what it takes for someone like George C. Scott to really go there, not just like literally the way that his character does, but like with his performance at times, uh-huh. which is just one of the best things I think he's ever done, honestly. Maybe part of the reason why I think it was loathed in its time is because like there are some overtly exploitative elements to it. Like that beginning of just like your kids being youthful and playing in the snow and having the best life they could possibly have. It's just so on the nose next to fucking 
snuff film rings and yes. and nudity and rape and all these horrible things that's happening to your perfect daughter. It's yeah. just it's like I get it. I understand that's it's a, very on the nose. It's yeah. a hard, hard pill to swallow. Yeah, there's for a that movie, opening but, scene where like the men in the family, it's a Calvinist family, much yep. like Schrader's upbringing, but they're like debating the Bible and they're quoting verses, and then they go to church and they're singing the hymns, and it's like just as hellish as the hell that George C. Scott descends into just in a different way. Sure. Yeah. And yeah, all of that is very obvious, but it also feels born out of his experience. So like, I don't know if I can complain about it all that much. Cause like I didn't live that lifestyle. No, no. I mean, I, that, I kind of felt the same way. I mean, it's, it helps if you've also seen a ton of Schrader films, but even then I think if I watched this film for the first time, like this feels like a place of like real pain to me. So here's the thing. So, Trader was raised Calvinist, didn't see a movie until the age of 17, watched a lot of movies in his early teens or late teens and early 20s. And, you know, he's written a lot about his movies because he's a film critic at heart and he's done a lot of reflecting on them. And I think he said in his book, Schrader on Schrader, that he wrote in the early 90s, that his movies generally aren't emotional. He doesn't think of himself as an emotional filmmaker. He thinks of himself as an intellectual filmmaker because he doesn't have many memories of watching movies as a child in his adolescence. So he's kind of the anti Spielberg in that way, right? Like Spielberg is motivated entirely by the stuff that happened to him as a kid. He's a very sincere, earnest, emotional filmmaker for that reason. And Schrader, you know, is approaching it like, you know, um, uh, an archeologist would be, you know, looking at fossils You know what I mean? Like he's excavating these stories that were not something he was raised with, right? It's almost like a foreign language that he's learning. Like he's learning a second language almost Mm -hmm. when he makes movies. This is, I think, the one exception in his filmography to that rule. This to me feels very fucking emotional. (laughs) You know, this is the first time where I'm like, oh, this is clearly born out of your experience. The main character is clearly your dad. You are meant to be the runaway daughter here, you know, going into like skeezy Hollywood and you're trying to make a movie from the point of view of your dad, sympathizing with your father and his skepticism towards the world that you're entering. Sure. And then again, you're Paul Schrader. So can you blame him? You know what I mean? (laughs) I guess so. Yeah. So this to me felt very true to him. Um, And that's why I think like if there's an on the noseness to it, or there's an intensity that is not necessarily in the other Schrader movies. That's why. Why does he have a problem with that? I don't think there's anything wrong with drawing from that. Does that maybe that's the more interesting thing about this movie. Because I, I don't know. I think it mostly works. I think front to back. I think it's a really effective kind of revenge film in a way. Primarily, I don't think he thinks about sex in the same way that he did in the 70s. No. Okay. You know what I mean? And that has definitely evolved. And... I mean, he cast a freaking porn star in 2013 in one of his movies. It's like the lead in one of his movies. Like, he's clearly interested in this world. He's seduced by this world. Like, he's interested in porn. He's interested in prostitution. Like, it intrigues him. But I think, like, there's a moralization. And weirdly enough, a prudishness to this movie. Yeah. Even though, like, it involves a lot of naked people. There's a real prudishness and traditionalism here that I don't think is in his later movies. And maybe, you know, that's because he's viewing it from that, like, Calvinist lens and the more distance he's gotten from it. I think it's mainly that he would not have told the story in the same way now with the same point of view. That doesn't mean that this version is inherently flawed. It's just a different side of yourself. Definitely. I agree with you. It's just, it's it's funny that 
there's just so much sex and there's so much nudity yes. and there's so much porn. And he and, still thinks it's... And it's like, yeah, like this is so anti-sex in a way. And I, I get it when I watch the movie. Like it is very, you know, anti-sex in a way. It's gross. Like that's the, the weird thing that you it's, have to do. Yeah, I it's, mean, it's this paradox that we talk about this all the time with movies. Like, yeah, it's like how can you criticize violence without showing some violence? Sure. You know, you know, how can you criticize horror movies without being a good horror movie scream? You know, right, it's the right, same. Right, right, you know, right, right. It's tough. I, and you kind of know it when you see it, though. I think this kind of strikes that balance, though. It's like, I don't know, if I came out of it and I was disturbed by the sex. I think that's enough. It's just a hard film. This was this was a tough one for me, to be perfectly honest. Like, I, I liked the film. I didn't enjoy my experience with it, but I think that's part of the point. Mm-hmm. It's just hard, man. Like, these types of stories really get to me. Like, I don't like 8mm because it's like a shittier version of this in every single way. <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't help that that story for me personally is just fucking difficult. I just have trouble with these kinds of movies. But this is like the best. I do too. Yeah. Watching the snuff film in this one. Oh my God. Hated it. Yeah. That bothers me. It's just. And I'm not usually squeamish about these kinds of things. No, it was for me. For Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There's something almost too real about it. I'm always disturbed by how like unhurried someone is when they're in these actions. They're just like, okay. Right. Yeah. All right. You're dead. And it's just. I think it just like I'm not a masochist. <laughs> well, that's good, Nico. I think maybe that's I have a problem with that. Yeah. I have a problem with people that like enjoy pain or like are turned on by pain like that. That's always bothered me. I like horror movies. No, but, but yeah, right. But, but, but like I like being scared, but like th- there's a limit to I, I guess if that is that a form of masochism? I don't know. No, I don't I don't, th- I don't think, so. think so. Yeah. Horror movies, by definition, are fantastical, right? Yes. Like, well, that's why. I, yeah, yeah, it's like you know, bodies exploding or being stabbed in ways that bodies aren't actually stabbed. You know, like yeah, exactly. People don't see it as escapism, but there is an element of escapism to a horror movie. Well, it has to very be elevated weird. in order to be a horror movie. It has to be elevated. Yeah, yeah. You know yeah, what yeah. I mean, oh. like a grindhouse movie is not necessarily a horror movie. Just because something is more violent doesn't make it a horror. Oh, movie. sure. Like there has to be an element of it that's otherworldly or like overly gruesome. Mm-hmm. And so like, yeah, I don't think of horror in that way. Like I don't enjoy being scared, but I don't think like it doesn't stick with me in the way that it, that something like this sticks with me. Yeah. Now I also find this movie very funny. Oh, well I guess with maybe the Peter Boyle elements, I suppose. Peter Boyle is hilarious. Yeah. He's pretty, he's pretty good in this. The porno director, the like boogie nights, Oh, Burt yeah. Reynolds kind of character. Yeah, yeah he's great. He's who's great. like the producer of porno movies. Okay, but see, here's a good example of like where I didn't, I felt like the comedy fit the characters properly, where it's like it just kind of felt natural to who they were in the scene. Sure. It didn't feel out of place to me ever. Right. Like, I know it's supposed to be serious and everything, and I get like, this is a thriller first and foremost, but like, George C. Scott in the motel room auditioning porn stars with a with the hair yeah yeah with a mustache with like a disguise yeah there's an element of comedy to that or like, like him huh? going to a sex shop and looking at dildos and it's just like you know like that is inherently funny seeing like a super religious guy like sure sure you know what i mean so like there are elements of that in there and then like yeah like the boogie nights style like like that when the when the producer says to the the kid can direct a picture. Yeah, I love it. You that, know, yeah. when like he's like directing the porn stars, the, like the, that. Li- the line. Yeah, from UCLA. Yeah, that was a good line. <laughs> UCLA. Yeah, see. Yeah. So it kind of you know it predates that boogie nights that idea that like you know this is actual film meant to be taken seriously. I love that shit in this movie. You know what I mean? Paints an underworld too, by the way, which is something I also love. 
Yeah. They just come to the resolution of it all just a little too conveniently. And it didn't really feel like it built up to that idea naturally. It's just kind of boom there. Oh, I was a bad father. It's like, I get what you're doing movie, but like, I really need to feel like the emotional weight of why you think you're a bad father building up to that. I honestly didn't quite get that. Yeah. Did you think that she was kidnapped and drugged or whatever? Or did you like when you were watching the movie or did you assume that she was doing this willingly. Well, again, I saw the religious stuff at the beginning. I'm like, well, she's clearly rebelling against this. That's what it has to be. Right. right. Now, to what degree she's rebelling, I don't know. I don't know if she's really running away. And maybe that was a little bit of a stretch for me, I guess. Well, they don't really give you any of that in the first 10 minutes of the movie. Like, when she goes off, she, like, gives her dad a hug, and it, it doesn't seem like a young girl... It, going through a crisis. Well, I wonder if I'm just so used to movies like breaking apart these particular foundations. Like I, I just saw the movie and I saw what she was living in and I just knew the movie was going to like tear this lifestyle yeah, apart. Yeah, yeah. So maybe if I wasn't as used to movies like this, right. maybe I would have said like, oh, that came out of nowhere. At the same time though, like this is a movie where you have to be in George C. Scott's point of view. So you need to be in denial along with him. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yes. You know, he's in denial the whole time. She would never do something like that. She's the perfect daughter. Like, she's never done anything wrong. The movie has to give you plausible doubt Mm -hmm. in the first act. So maybe that's part of it. You know what I mean? Like, if she was, like, drinking behind the dumpster at her local high school in the first 10 minutes of the movie, maybe it would have tipped you off that there was a dark, side to her personality yeah and that's a slightly different movie of course and maybe not as effective as a movie because i do like the notion that you don't know she did this willingly until you have found her with george c scott and she reveals that she's done it willingly i just think that maybe her monologue her explanation it's it is too yeah yeah 100 percent. no it's like taxi driver taxi driver is a similar compromise although in taxi driver it works it works yeah we're going to go out in a blaze of glory, kill all the bad guys, and then the good guys are going to ride off into the sunset. But they don't really ride off into the sunset. That's the thing about Taxi Driver that Scorsese nails. Yeah. But like, I think in the hands of a lesser director, the studio might have meddled too much and been like, you know, it would have been John Wayne riding off into the sunset. And this movie, although I love the climax and the action yeah, fucking it's a great rules. Climax. Oh my God. It is pretty neat in how it resolves the conflict. Yeah. With the exception of... Season Hubley's character, who is kind of just left there, like the ending of Chinatown. Yeah, I know. Like, that forget too. it, Jake. There's nothing you can do. What is the line he says in this? I think something like, "There's no, you don't belong here, right? Yeah, you don't belong here, Pilgrim. Yeah, something like that. So, right? Yeah, literally referencing John Wayne. Right? Literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. Like, there's an ambiguity to that and an incompleteness to that story sure. that really works. Because mm-hmm. um, that is kind of the foundational relationship in this movie. Um, I just think it's so messy and so Schrader and so fucking fun. Yeah, so 70s in a, yeah. way, in a way that's just delicious. But yeah. also disgusting. Oh my God, that's my daughter. Yeah. What a great tagline. Yeah. And hey, guess what? We have a little bit of a legacy with this movie, with the internet, because they cannot stop memeing that fucking turn it off part. It's a funny meme, I guess, but like, yeah. I wonder if people have seen the movie. <laughs> yeah, no, the context Nobody. of that. Yeah. It's like, are you serious, guys? <laughs>
American Gigolo. Oh, American Gigolo. 1980. Starring Richard Gere, Lauren Hutton, and Bill Duke. A Los Angeles male escort who mostly caters to an older female clientele is accused of a murder which he did not commit. John Travolta was supposed to do this movie. He was cast. He got fitted for the Armani suit. Really? He has to drop out. I think the stated reason is that his parents fell ill and he had to take care of business in his home life. Really? Okay. So he doesn't do this movie. The rest is history there. Travolta still makes blowout and everything, and that's good, but like, it's a real desert in the late 80s, early 90s for Travolta until Tarantino rescues his career. Sure. But it's one of the great what-ifs in Hollywood. What if Travolta did this movie instead of Richard Gere? You know, Richard Gere gets to be the sex symbol, the icon in this. It's funny that Travolta's brought it because the first movie I thought of while watching American Gigolo was Saturday Night Fever. Me too. It's the first thing that came to my mind. Yeah, not kidding. Me too, yeah. Because Schrader kind of fell ass backwards into this, and I know he didn't intend for this, but like Saturday Night Fever is meant to be a deconstruction of masculinity and is meant to be a critique of its characters. And John Travolta just looks so fucking cool walking down the street to Bee Gees music that it becomes an overnight success and like the symbol for American masculinity for like 10 years. Yeah, it has that fight club problem where it's like, it's, yeah, guys, actually, it's breaking that shit down. Don't fall into the trap. And, the, and then everybody falls into the trap. He's just too damn sexy. Yeah. He just looks too good. Travolta just looks too damn good in that movie. And it becomes like, yes, the symbol for the American man. Yep. And Schrader, who is has committed his life to like making movies that critique masculinity and like break down difficult men, again, just like casts the most handsome man ever born yep. and puts the blondie song under it, like Call Me. Yeah. It was written for this movie and shoots him in that way in the apartment and just has him leaning up against the doorway. And it's like I'm like, this is some 80s glossy shit right here. What are you doing, Schrader? Like, this is what I was talking about. It's like, this is some populist, intense, like, like sugary stuff. I mean, yeah. I had a feeling it was going to be destroyed by the end of the movie, but I was like, whoa. I didn't. I honestly didn't think Schrader was capable of going here Yeah. until I saw it. So, like, he just, you know, and in that Schrader way where, like, he's critiquing sex and somehow, like, he defines male sexuality for a generation, you know? Yeah. I just find that very funny. It is. Um, this movie rules, dude. This movie yeah. fucking rips. This movie's so fucking good. <laughs> it's so entertaining. I love it so much. I love the vibes. I love hanging out with Gear in LA. <laughs> I love, dude. Richard Gear just like butt ass naked. Oh my god. Schlong hanging out. I was so sh surprised that they went and did. That. I was like, really? Just, oh wow. Just looking out a window, talking about how he pleasures old women. It's just the best. It's not my vibe. Vibes, bro. It might be your vibe. It is not my vibe. It's my vibe. It's a good movie. Yeah. Not entirely for me, though. I got to be honest. Mm. I was surprised by it. I was like, huh, okay. Uh -huh. Well, it was good. It was very, very well done. And I think I actually really enjoy Richard Gere in this movie, to be honest. And I like that character. And I like where he goes. Star-making role. Yeah. I think the ending is fucking fantastic. Yep. There's a lot of like excellent things about it. It's, it's a very good movie. But... um. Yeah, I hate the setting. It's just not my setting. It's uh, I, 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 I was like, get me the fuck out of here. Yeah. I wanted to be as far away from this scene as I possibly could. Uh -huh. So, again, another one of those, like, it's not a horror movie at all, but fucking feels like a horror movie to me. Oh, funny. Ooh, hate, hate, hate this setting. Yeah. But, you know, sexy as hell. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but like a movie about a deviant. Like yeah, a, that's mo- a movie about a guy that enjoys giving pleasure but can't get any for himself. Like yeah. the classic Schrader conundrum. You exactly. know what I mean? Just like a classic troubled Schrader protagonist. I want to hear admit all the women's stories of Schrader's impotence and see uh see what they have oh, to say. Oh, do I have a story for you from the, the set of the next movie? Really? Oh my god. It was weird because I was like watching the first half and I'm just like, it's just about this guy being a scummy sex fiend, fucking older women and like this horrible, glossy 80s crap all over. Like I just couldn't get into it. And then the noir starts to happen. Right. And the mystery starts to unfold and the guy is just wreaking havoc on himself and just trying to figure out why anyone would do this to him. And it just becomes a jam. So it's one of those movies that like. Isn't it funny? I feel the complete opposite. Yeah. That's hilarious. I find the the actual crime and the mystery at the center of this movie totally underwhelming. In a way it is. I think like Richard Gere's carrying me through it is what helped. And Bill Duke being a major player also helped. Being Bill Duke, yeah. Because Bill Duke is just my favorite human being on yeah. this planet. Those eyes, dude. I love Bill Duke. I, I feel like I've said this before, but same birthday. Johnny Cash and Bill Duke. Hell yeah. I'm fine with that. Yeah, just I can, the whole spectrum I, of uh, I, I, yeah, I can, of I, cool. It's it's Johnny Cash, it's Bill Duke, and it's Adam Hall, baby. <laughs> February 26th. <laughs> Cash, Duke, and Hall. <laughs> Feels like a country music trio. <laughs> Fuck yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I don't know. Like, I love the breakdown. I fucking love the um conversation scenes where he's just destroying his apartment, looking for like the. Yeah, jewels. I, thought, I thought of the conversation too. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like just really. He real- shoots that like overhead. But he drops the music out. You don't Completely. actually hear him tearing out the uh, apartment. You just hear the score. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, and yeah. That that shit. Total vibes. Sick lighting in that scene Sick, too. Yeah, through yeah. the blinds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hell yeah. Yeah, very like cool and expressionist and nice. I just yeah yeah. But a good blend of like that kind of stuff and like the eighties gloss that started to make it feel a little grosser and a little nastier. And I just kind of liked how he started to slowly turn all that on its head and. The movie like puts this character through the ringer, like it allows him to go to jail. I wasn't expecting that, but it's like, no, he's gonna go to jail and he's gonna be there for a little bit before he can even possibly be let out. It's not like, oh, this key piece of evidence is introduced and he's off scot free and he just parades out with everyone applauding him. I was like, no, please don't do that movie. And then by the time like you kind of recreate the shot from the card counter. That was the other thing <laughs> with the finger yeah, at yeah, the very yeah. end. I'm like, Oh wow. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I will say that the cop is really good. Hector. Uh, what is it? Elizondo. Oh, every single one of those scenes is great too. He's tremendous. He gives a great supporting performance too. the supporting cast. in this is really good. Actually, Lauren Hutton's really good too. as the love interest. I think you're guilty of sin. It's <laughs> a good line. He's great. Um, it's so funny. I check out when the crime elements start. Funny, like, yeah. I just want to hang out with this guy all day. Like, I just want to, you know, to be honest with you, I don't know if Schrader's super interested in the crime. Yeah. Like, he gives it, like, a pretty lame resolution. Like, the most obvious guy to have committed the crime committed the crime. Like, it is exactly... Sort of, yeah. He doesn't throw in any red herrings. Like, there's no other suspects, really. Well, I, I don't know. There was some. I, I think the woman's husband, the politician, was a bit, little bit of a red herring in a way. There's a couple. Kinda. I don't find the character interesting until he starts to, like lose control of his life though. interesting that's the thing i don't care about anything that he's doing oh prior. you think like this guy has it too much together and he needs to be knocked down a peg he's either too together or his philosophy is just nonsense and i'm just like no and then when the movie finally does put him to the test i'm I like see. ah there it is there it is i got you there's I got the conflict you. that i was looking for yeah see to me like when he's hanging upside down 
<laughs> you just love doing the crunches or whatever. You as love he's... the. You don't like the '80s, but you like it here because <laughs> oh, this, yeah. this '80s bullshit is just. No, I I aspire to that honestly. Like I I like I get it. Like my dad was like in his twenties when he saw this movie for the first time, and he still watches it all the time. It's a good movie. I see what he saw. Like if sure. you know, if I was twenty years old and fucking that Blondie song is playing on the radio every other day, and this movie is in theaters, like I would have seen it five times. Yeah, absolutely. Like I totally get it. Even though it is a movie like that is so, it's not really anti-sex, but it's anti like the transactional nature of sex. Absolutely. It's critical of that. Well, it also says like it has diminishing returns. Like at the end of the day, like you can only sustain that for so long until like something real starts to come your way and you might try to push it away. And he certainly does. Well, it's that line that Bill Duke says at the end. um, The other guy will always pay more. Yep. In a world where it's all costs when it's all transactional, like, yeah, yeah, things get messy. And to a certain degree, it's like, yeah, what's the point of all this? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I, I would like, if I was, 20 years old and this thing came out like yeah i could i would model myself after this guy Absolutely. Out of richard gear i'd get the richard gear haircut like i'd wear the armani suit this is the movie by the way that put armani on the map is that right yeah oh, this is the thing that introduced armani to american audiences and that he kind of takes off after that holy cow yeah no and i also think I'd, I'd like to say the first half being what it is for me like in retrospect actually makes the movie as a whole better because i love that kind of like first half second half split you know, yes, but it's another movie where you clock it and it's like, where is this really going? And then it is like the, almost like the halfway point where the movie decides that it's actually more of this like complicated mystery that just tears this guy a new asshole. <laughs> yeah. And listen, I get that you, you need something, you need a propeller here to move the plot along. I understand that. And I'm not against the noir elements of this thing either, but, um, yeah, I like the vibe. I want to yeah. hang out the vibe. I have not watched the new TV show that came out. I think it was on Stars last year with John Barenthal. Oh, there's a TV show? There is. Like last year it just came out. I didn't even know about that. Yeah. Schrader had nothing to do with it. I think he was pretty mad about it. Yeah. I am curious to see this in TV form. I think it would kind of work. I get it. I could see it working, sure, yeah. You know? Yeah. Because I do want to hang out with this guy forever. It's, de- it's definitely- This guy's fucking sick, dude. I don't like him at all. <laughs> like Don Draper it's the same thing like he's such a dirtbag and I understand you're not supposed to like aspire to that but you want to hang out with Don I want to Draper. drink an old-fashioned and smoke a cigarette at three o'clock in the afternoon We're very different people you and I <laughs> not saying I could pull it off I most certainly cannot pull it <laughs> yeah, off I don't see you doing it at all I could not be an American <laughs> gigolo let's be clear no no you cannot oh, well. I, absolutely not if Rob Schneider can do it, well, actually, he's a European chicken. He's a European chicken. Ah, my bad. My bad. Yeah, come on. Don't you know my name? You've been so long. And I've been putting out fire. Cat people. Cat people. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> From nineteen eighty. <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> Fucking cat people.
starring Natasia Kinski. You might also know her from Paris, Texas, by the way. Yep. That, that's her other big 80s role. Malcolm McDowell. Oh, Malcolm McDowell. And John Hurd, the stud. Yeah. An American gigolo in his own right, John Hurd. John Hurd, star of um, Sharknado. A young woman's sexual awakening brings horror when she discovers her urges transform her into a monstrous black leopard. <laughs> you want the story? I'll just give you the Schrader story yes, now. Yes, please, 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 please. Let's not bury the lead here. Director Paul Schrader and lead actress Natasha Kinski had an affair during the production of this movie. Schrader fell in love and planned to propose marriage to Kinski at the rap party, but she didn't show up and cut off all communication with him. After three months, Schrader finally tracked Kinski down in Paris, where she bluntly told him, this should be in a Schrader movie, this line. Oh, no. Paul, I always fuck my directors, and with you, it was difficult. <laughs> Poor Paul. <laughs> Poor Paul. <laughs> I always fuck my directors, and with you, it was difficult. <laughs> That's the best. Your old pal failed you there, huh, Paul? Oh, oh, that's the best. Couldn't rise to the occasion? Not a stick man, Paul Schrader, turns out. The spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. (laughs) God, that is so horribly brutal. Could you imagine being called difficult by Natasha Kinski? Jesus. Could you imagine? That's fucked. Like the daughter of Klaus Kinski, for God's sakes. I mean, and just an absolute vision in this movie. Uh, yes. I, I mean, not to get too locker room talky here, but like. Holy crap. Oof. Yep. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> cat people. I watched the original, actually. Yeah. The original is from 1942. It's weird. This is somehow more of a B movie than that one. What? Yeah, it's very <laughs> odd. It's very odd. But somehow this one is like cornier than the first one. What the fuck? That one, you would think it's called Cat People, and it came out in 1942, and it was like a micro-budget RKO movie. It's considered like a classic of horror cinema, but like, there's not a lot of violence, there's not a lot of jump scares, it's very psychological, Mm. and you kind of understand why Schrader would have seen something interesting in this material, because a lot of it is implied, just because it was budgetarily restricted. So they show very little. There are real cats in that movie, and it is also a movie about a a woman's sexual awakening in some ways. The pool scene, for example, in this movie is almost a shot-for-shot remake. Really? Interesting. That's a great scene. And it's, I think, even better in the original. I don't even think Schrader outdid it. I can't say this movie is better. Actually, I can say that the 42 version is better. Um, Really? Oh, interesting. Yeah, it is. But, uh, I mean, just... Talk about finding something new in the IP. You know what I mean? Like, not all remakes are just rehashes of the first thing. This one is radically different. It's its own thing. I'm not sure Schrader was the perfect man for the job, but I understand why the studios went to him. Okay. I do like the movie, and I do think it's actually quite good. And it's another one of those movies for Schrader. I'm like, why did you go to this place? What are you doing here, man? Like, this... You want to do this? Okay. And the result is this, I mean, wonderful gift of like a horror movie. It's a weird but effective erotic horror movie. I've never seen a blending quite like this, at least not in a long time. It's so erotic. Really? It's so fucking erotic. You could argue this whole movie is just a series of bestiality scenes and <laughs> uh, somehow it is sexy. Incestuous bestiality scenes, yeah. E- even, even better. Yeah. <laughs> it's so 
fucking weird. No, it really, it is like Fatal Attraction with a sci-fi horror element. It really is. Like, it is an erotic thriller. There's a lot of nudity in it. Natasha Kinski's very naked. Very, very naked. naked. So constantly naked. And then she also becomes like a cat creature at one point with some, you know, less than convincing makeup, but it, it's still pretty effective. I was going to say, even though it's not seamless, it was still oddly effective, just for, like making me uncomfortable yeah. in the moment. It's funny, she actually does look like a cat, though. Yeah, she does. She does. She looks like a cat. <laughs> this movie, I think I, I, when I was thinking about it, I was like, this is like drinking moonshine. That's what right. this movie feels like to me. <laughs> it's like nothing about this should go together. It's a fucking nasty, disgusting process that's all crammed together in this weird thing. Yeah. But boy, does it get you fucked up and you have a <laughs> grand old time. It gets the job done. <laughs> it gets the job done. Cat people. I would also like to mention that we this is a second podcast in a row for like an actual movie hall of fame where we have another connection to Inglorious Bastards with the songs. I watched that clip on YouTube in preparation for this, and um, wow, fucking QT, man. <laughs> That's the best. Yep. Inglorious Bastards when uh, Shoshana is putting on the makeup when she's about to go to the movie, the David Bowie song from Cat People plays. I didn't know it's from this movie. Like, that's yeah. who wrote it for the movie. Bowie wrote it for the movie. It's yeah. insane to me. It's fucking sick. And then you like put that in the context of Inglorious Bastards. You know, when you put this story in that context and it's like, oh my God, Tarantino, you're a madman. Such a weirdo. You're <laughs> such a freak. <laughs> fucking vengeful Jewish girl in fucking World War II. Right. <laughs> I can draw the parallel with the hybrid cat woman. The movie is actually surpassed. Like not not the movie itself. Inglorious Bastards, much better movie. But um, <laughs> but like that song, I don't think of Inglorious Bastards. Oh, now. absolutely not. No, yeah. I think of this movie instantly. Yeah. It's, it's like like oh, I see the sexiness. I, I I feel like I'm not making any sense right now talking about this movie. <laughs> well, you should also explain. So here's the plot of the movie, right? There's this woman that's an orphan that reunites with supposedly her brother, played by Malcolm McDowell. It's her brother, as I, th- I think we find out. Yeah, but okay. Yeah, but what does brother mean in that context? Like, I think it's a little more... I think all the cat people are brothers and sisters. You know what I'm saying? I suppose. Don't they go out of their way to say that, like, we can only reproduce with like, members right. of the family? Yeah. It's like, they like, go out of their way to basically say, like, this needs to be incestuous. He does this whole incest thing. Uh, Malcolm McDowell's character is not in the original. That is a invention wholly for oh this God. movie. The John Hurd character exists in the original. John Hurd's friend there from work exists in the original. She is... Also the woman in the pool scene. But yeah, the the Malcolm McDowell character was invented whole cloth because they didn't want this movie to come across as sexist. They didn't want a woman being sexually awakened to be seen as like the subject of a horror movie. They wanted to include the male in there to demonstrate that actually, no, there's an evil guy too. they, They didn't want it just to be like a, you know, like a vengeful woman kind of movie. All right. But with that, you get this whole like incest element. Malcolm McDowell like keeps <laughs> yeah. like insisting that they have sex. It's really weird. McDowell is hamming it up like oh, you yeah. wouldn't believe. There are also these like expressionistic sequences that I don't know if it's meant to be Africa or if it's a dream. Like, I, but like the movie's Dune. Like David Lynch is Dune for like ten minutes. Yeah, yeah. Where she, she goes back to like the land of her ancestors to like get control of her power or something like that. Right. There's a lot of that. It's important to know that these are people that transform into 
cats. Not right. just cat people hybrids. They transform into cats. Right. After they've had sex with someone that is not a brother or a sister. Something like that. After they have sex, they have to kill. Okay. Right, because doesn't she go on a murder spree after she, after they her and John Heard? I know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. And, and she goes on a murder spree, but then that's why he like chains her down, which is another hyper-erotic moment. Yeah, totally. spreads her legs with the fucking ropes. Yeah. Completely naked. Yeah. But no, I thought like Malcolm McDowell, in order to like satisfy the curse or whatever it is, like they need to have sex or something. Yes. Something like that. Yeah. Like, God, just, They're very complicated rules. The mythology is a little weird here. Right. Yeah. If I was a cat person myself, I'd be like, hey, Malcolm McDonald, you making that up just to get in my pants? <laughs> Seems very involved. The answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> Malcolm McDowell's always trying to get into people's pants. It's true. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this movie's just so silly. It's a crazy movie. Just so silly. Ruby D is in this as like a voodoo lady in New Orleans. Yep, that's right. That yeah. lives with Malcolm McDowell and like in the first 10 minutes of the movie before we know anything about the cat people, she's just watching cat cartoons. Yeah. <laughs> it's One like of those what? movies, you know, it's just really funny and kooky. It's like, I can't handle it movie, but yeah. like, I, I'm so entranced by like how insane it is. It's like, okay, I, I guess I'm, I'm along for this ride. And eventually you just kind of surrender to it. Yeah. That's what I did. Like at a certain point I was just kind of fucking in it. Like, especially when she was looking for the rabbit and it was cutting back and forth to her night vision POV, which is so weird oh, and yeah. janky. Yeah. 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 And she's again. Remember when she shows up in the bedroom after? She's like, "Don't look at me! Don't look at me!" Like terrifying too. By the way, that 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 really worked. And then like just the shot at the beginning where she's like the call girl. She's in the room with Malcolm McDowell, who is now transformed into a a panther. And she touches like what looks like vomit, and she like smells it. It's a bizarre movie, guys. And (laughs) the ending of the movie, dude. I was just like, and I knew that's where it was going. Obviously, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to be with my people, and then she get that. indulgence of this movie where it just the song starts playing and when we get a freeze frame of the leopard and we just hold on the freeze frame of the panther as the music gets to the part where we finally get the drop yeah 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 and then we get one last roar and then the credits roll (laughs) so many right but a lot of that too was borrowed from the original like the scene where the friend i'm i'm blanking on the actress and the character's name but when she mistakes the screeching of the bus for the sound of a panther oh yeah that's in the original okay um there's also some like gnarly horror stuff in there too like the autopsy scene yeah with yeah. the hand oh my god yeah. that's yeah. a great scene i recommend it i mean if you guys just want like a trip <laughs> that, sure that's janky as hell and doesn't always work but like yeah if you're the type of person that takes you know lubricants before watching a movie maybe you get together you're in college you you know if you're into that kind of thing this is a good uh you know get high and watch with your friends movie sure Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters from 1985 is the final movie on the list today. 
starring Ken Ogata, a fictionalized account in four chapters of the life of celebrated Japanese writer Yokio Mishima. I would say this is probably, if there was a masterpiece in his filmography that is agreed upon, I think there, there are several masterpieces personally, but if there was one consensus masterpiece, this would probably be the one that cinephiles go to. And that's fair. I think you can make the argument. There's lots of movies like that where it's like, yeah, that's the masterpiece, but is it really your favorite? Yes. Right. If I had to judge it like a gymnastics routine, this is his most impressive movie. How about that? Oh, yeah. No, no, I would agree with that. I'd certainly say it's his most impressive film. It's a great movie. I think it's undeniably like a great movie, but my God, is this a complicated movie. Yeah. Because it jumps back and forth between like, the stories he wrote and sort of adaptations of those stories. Yes. And you got to think like, okay, it's an adaptation of a Mishima story, which informs you a lot about his writing. Right. Which informs a lot about the man. Yeah. And it's a much wilder version of like what Abel Ferrara did with Pasolini. Sure. Does a similar thing, just focuses on one movie as opposed to four different stories that I'm trying to- All within like two hours too. Like you imagine a movie like this would be four hours long. Exactly. It's just so much. Like there's so much to learn from every story about the man and about the way he tells the stories and about what he's interested in as a person and the evolution of that over time, how this- one story here will inform his final action in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's definitely, definitely, definitely a movie that I enjoy thinking about much more than I did like watching it. Uh. And that's not to say I didn't enjoy watching it. It's a great movie. I think it's like the, the most overtly great movie on here. Yeah. It's just like a, it's a mouthful, a handful, just a lot. It's a lot of movie. Yeah. So Schrader has talked about in the past having trouble with biopics. He has a hard time cracking biopics because you have to take some artistic liberties just to make it a watchable two hour thing. Mm-hmm. Right. You can't just copy a Wikipedia page and make that into a movie. You know, he figures it out with Raging Bull. Taxi Driver is semi biographical. It's kind of based on a real guy. But, you know, those movies, I would say, are unconventional in how they're written and how they're plotted. Yep. And this is, I guess, the greatest example of that. But what he does is he, re- he recognizes, oh, like, yeah, Mishima's work for the most part is autobiographical or at least semi-autobiographical. He's already done the hard work for me. Mm-hmm. You know, he's already taken the parts of himself and put it into a readable format. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So all okay. I have to do is translate that now. Yep. You know, and essentially, like, we're not watching Mishima in these vignettes but really we are you know what I no mean? Yeah, yeah yeah that's that's exactly it. it's like even if we're not literally seeing mishima every single story you're learning a tremendous amount about him sure and, and there, sometimes the avatar can be split into a few different people at times which i found very interesting right it wouldn't be the same with every single writer i think like there are certain writers right. out there that don't put themselves into the characters quite as much as mishima clearly did sure so you're right in that, like, Schrader had a lot of his work, like, kind of solved for him from the get-go if yes. he was going to go in this direction. Right. I mean, literally, like, th- there is stuff in his short stories, particularly the one where the guy commits seppuku, which is, I-, I mean, it is a perfect parallel for where this movie ultimately goes. Best final shot of all of his movies, by the way. Just an in- ingenious, spiritual, yeah. poetic, beautiful idea for a shot. Right. The ending, like, with what actually happens to Mishima at the end is pretty beat for beat what happened, too. Yeah, I think we can. I don't think it's a spoiler to say what happens to him at the end because I think like it's on the log line of the movie. But 
this is a guy who was, I don't know if he was the most famous writer in Japan, but he was a celebrity. He was like a major figure in Japan that also had like a private militia. Yeah. <laughs> like he had his own army. I did. You know? <laughs> I had to do like about five minutes of reading on this guy to realize he was absolutely insane. He was a crazy man. An insane man. Like, I don't even know. There isn't an American parallel to this. Like, well, we got to think of like, who's a nationalist, like a hardcore radical nationalist of today that would just like Milo Yiannopoulos. Like, I don't know. Like who would that guy even be? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) But like, uh, yeah, imagine that. Right. Imagine like a hardcore nationalist, assembled an army like of samurai <laughs> yeah that's right it's not just like like a normal militia of the time they have to be samurai they're they're like samurai that have the respect of the military in japan yep and like he's a well-connected guy and he's also like a guy people read and an actor and an actor yeah he's in movies too. and a director it's just like right like yeah he like he's a major figure in japan you know what i mean yep that took a general hostage and marched into the headquarters. I don't know what the, the terminology is in Japan, but mm. I don't know where the military hangs out. Sure. And uh, delivers a speech televised, right? Or at least it was filmed. I don't know if it was televised, but it was filmed. Oh, you can watch him on YouTube. You can watch the speech? Yeah. yeah. And then commit seppuku at the end. You didn't have to. I mean, they were never going to listen to him, but it's like, if you just listen to me, it'll be fine. But they, of course, they don't listen to him. And then he uh, got some- Stage of suicide, yeah. Yeah. Um, didn't go very well, by the way. The guy who was supposed to do it fucked up. Mishima had like gutted himself, and then the guy tried to cut his head off like three times. Didn't work, and then one guy comes in and finishes the job. Oh my goodness! Yeah. So right. So like you know, we have the Bud Dwyer thing here. Like there have been instances of very minor people committing suicide live on television, and those are like very strange curiosities in American history. Yeah. Like if a major figure did that publicly and it was like a political statement and he also had a fucking militia at his disposal I, there was really no, there is no parallel yeah yeah it's this insane story and again like you read it it's like oh that's a paul schrader movie it is but you again know? like this guy that just is not like anybody else knows he's not like anybody else can't connect to anything because everything is like backwards to him everything he's ever been searching for in life just always feels out of grasp for him yeah. again like just the ultimate lonely man that yeah. that Schrader loves so much that is compelled to action compelled to like yes. violent action yeah, it's yeah. exactly yeah, yeah. Vi- like really I mean really, it's the end of first reformed it's the end of taxi driver it's yeah right perfect character perfect real life character for Schrader it doesn't surprise me at all that he was interested in making this movie yeah the craftsmanship is amazing the production design is kind of flawless, yeah, stellar. Yeah, stunning, yeah. It's a painting. The whole movie's a painting to me. Yeah. He cuts between flashbacks of his life of actual Mishima in black and white, and the present day is in color, but it's not as stylized as the short stories, as the vignettes, which are in this very like theatrical expressionist yeah, uh, minimalist sets. Exactly, you know? like totally artifice and, and all yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. But really wise and smart and just oddly beautiful, like the great scene, like... With the mirror, with where after the it's guy an, said, a ridiculous shot. Like, how do you think of that shot? I was like, that is genius. It's absolute genius. Like, damn. Yeah, I love the line. I'll be your mirror. That's just a, such a great right. And then she line. like reflects her body parts on his face. She's a prostitute that like um, puts a mirror like in front of his eyeball, and her eyeball will appear in there with like perfect symmetry. Yep. Yeah, it's it's incredible stuff. Yeah, just love it. Yeah, and also the use of color there too. Like, it doesn't feel like there are any overlaps in color. No, like each room has one idea. You know? Yes, you know, 
And it feels like there's only green and gold yeah. in this sequence. And then <laughs> in the next sequence, it's only pink and blue. Yeah, that's right. Or this one, it's just white. You know, right. It's almost like the color is what this part of the scene is about. And we're gonna, uh, apart from all the other stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's really smart. Yeah. 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 Very interesting and selective. And it's a, one of those movies where it, there's not one thing in here that is not considered. It's like the good version of Blonde. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> but similarly as overwhelming as Blonde, I would say. Certainly, just not as offensive. Yeah, he is able to bring his words to the screen in that Schrader way. No one writes narration like him. No one does VO like him. Like, <laughs> no. Like that whole line, I wrote it down actually because this is like the theme of the whole movie. This is a guy looking for artistic meaning in his life. Like he's looking to make his life into some sort of artistic statement. Perfect purity is possible if you turn your life into a line of poetry written with a splash of blood. Mm. Oh my God. Like, obviously he's a crazy man, but like he's also searching for meaning and that drives him to extremism. Yep. Um, you know, I'm thinking about First Reformed. It's a similar kind sure, of thing. You know, sure, it's a guy sure, on a yeah. spiritual journey and it drives him to violence and extremism. It's the only logical conclusion to his like line of thinking. He's a crazy guy. He's a bad guy. He has a lot of evil ideas. But like I sympathize with him at the end. Like when that line where he's like, I don't even think they heard me. Yeah, that's a great line. Yeah. Where the crowd is booing him. Like none of his ideas are getting through. He sees this as the defining moment of his life. And it's like, it's an afterthought. The, the things that you actually said on that stage, it's going to be lost in the dustpan of history, you know? And the action that you did is going to be thought of as just this insane thing. Yes. Like I do, I do sympathize with that, even though like he was not a good guy. No. <laughs> that didn't believe in things like democracy you know no I mean? he's he, like i don't agree with anything all, hardly anything that he stood for yeah schrader's always just been trying to square these people that have just lost their way by being like too in their head to a degree mm -hmm. i mean a lot of his characters have struggled with that just like how do you redeem a character that seems irredeemable you know your garden that's what you do your garden yeah that's yeah. right <laughs> How do you find... It's, you yeah. plant some tulips. That's what you fucking do. Yeah, it's so funny how fascinated he is by just these types of characters that are just like rabid dogs. And he's like, it's like Schrader's aware, like, well, they weren't always rabid dogs. Right. Well, that's the key. He roots it in real personal experience. Yeah. And trauma as opposed to like political ideology. Yeah, exactly. And that's why like a movie like this will always work. Mm -hmm. He roots it in his repressed homosexuality, which is kind of hinted at but not really explicitly said yeah you're right it never really says it but it is so obviously there right you don't need to search was mishima gay right you just know it by watching the movie like oh yeah right. he totally was the movie didn't tell me like literally at any point whatsoever but i just knew visually what was happening yeah. particularly the workout scenes too well and also you you juxtapose that with his childhood of mm -hmm. like he was a sickly boy that his grandma said would never be able to leave the house you know and now all of a sudden he's pumping iron that was one of my favorite cuts in the movie too when he goes into the locker room and they cut from the black and white to the color great stuff showing that parallel yep Th that is rooted in the emotional it's rooted in the human mm -hmm. um this is a stretch. I know it's a stretch, but I've been thinking about succession a lot, so sorry. But succession does a similar thing. That's why the political satire in succession works so well. It, because all of the bad things that the Roy kids do, it's, it's rooted in the fact that they want to impress their dad. All of this political satire that's about the ideas misses that bad ideas are only there because real people possess them. Yep. You know? And that's what this movie does. 
so well. Like it roots it in the personal trauma and you sympathize with the guy, even though like he does some evil shit at the end of this thing. That simple idea is like, we're all searching for something that we find genuinely meaningful or genuinely beautiful that goes beyond just, you know, us playing, you know, video games or watching TV or just reading a good book. It's like, this guy's looking for something that even transcends that. Yes. It's so hard to describe. And that's part of the reason why he probably ended up where he did just as he could never, one of my favorite things is like, he said something along the lines of like only words make sense to me, yeah. which is a really, lo- again, lonely idea. Like yeah. all that makes sense is this is like what I can put into words and use poetry to describe. Yeah. That's tough. And it's so like singular. It's it only applies to him really. Cause right. that's where that poetry is coming from. But like, and the idea that his life needs to be punctuated exactly in the same way that a poem needs to be punctuated and the emptiness in that pursuit ultimately. But at the same time, like we're watching a fucking movie about this guy 40 years later and significant. Sure. Yeah, it is like it is actually the stuff of great art. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's a major work. It's It's a a major work of art. This thing. Yes. Really fucking great. Absolutely. Yes, it is. It's absolutely. It's it's a fantastic movie. It's just it's, it's a lot, though. Also, that Philip Glass score. Oh, yeah. Oh, wonderful. I mean, uh, the score that you've probably heard a million times and didn't know what it was for. Yep, yep. The way that it builds throughout the entire movie is, yeah. Any other thing I want to say, like, feels like a, a movie like Mishima would have been proud of. You know, his widow was involved. Oh, really? I think, yeah, he collaborated with the estate Okay. on the making of it. Although they didn't love the homosexual slash bisexual stuff. Mm-hmm. They didn't love that. I just think like it's it's made by a guy that's made some fucking American ass movies though. Like, right. Like, even though they're hard American movies, they're deeply rooted in like the American experience. Yeah. And this is very much a Japanese film, but it's just a human film at its Link core. Linklater said it doesn't really feel like an American movie. It feels like a Japanese movie. I Richard think Linklater feel- said that in a Criterion thing, and I actually agree with him. I think, yeah, that's what I'm saying. No, I think yeah. it feels more Japanese than anything American, and it's just amazing that a guy that's made movies like fucking Blue Collar, right, just about like the worst type of American experience, could make yeah, something but, like this. But, you know, he's an intellectual trader. Yes. That's the thing about him, right? Like, that's how he thinks about story. He doesn't think about it along cultural lines. No. Like he sees these things as like human myth and tradition. Yep. Yep. You know, whereas all of his contemporaries are trying to fit into this American box. Sure. Yeah. You know, Spielberg is looking to be this great entertainer and Coppola makes the Godfather, which is like, you know, it, it's about America in so many ways. It's about the American immigrant experience. Whereas he's a guy that studies the craft of storytelling, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And listen, sometimes that comes across as really fucking cold and pretentious. Sure. But like yeah, he can make a movie in any language, you know, yeah. because like yeah, his yeah, understanding yeah. of film transcends language. Yes, exactly. Just his approach miraculously transcends these cultural boundaries. And I just, I wouldn't have thought that until I was presented with it. It was yes. really amazing to behold. I was kind of marveled by that, honestly, that he was able to do that. It's certainly his greatest achievement. Yeah. So what are you feeling? It's blue collar or it's Mishima. Like just despite like the difficulty I had, like, getting to the bottom of Mishima. Like, it's the best film on the list. But, like, I, I enjoyed Blue Collar much more. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of happy with either getting in. You know what? My gut was American Gigolo, actually. Whoa. I think, I don't know. I think that's my favorite. I think that's my favorite. Wow, 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 wow. I think, I don't know, though. Hardcore, I think, is a little too messy. Yeah, yeah. I loved it, but. Yeah. I love it, too. And I think it's just so, it's so unbridled him. Like yes. that's, that's the thing I love about that movie. Yes. 
cat people, no fucking way. <laughs> It'd be hilarious if cat people got in. <laughs> um, cat people's ridiculous. So blue collar Mishima would be your your. Yeah, I think I think those are. Here's my thing. Head says Mishima, heart says blue collar, right? I don't know. I don't know. What do you want to do? Mishima's his best movie, though. I mean, what are we, who are we kidding? It's weird that, like, my emotional investment in a movie is not, like, all the way there, but even still, like, like I'm still thinking about the movie. Right. It's very rare that the movie is so fascinating and so interesting to me that despite, like, the emotional uh, investment being, like, halfway there, I'm still, like, in it. So I see what you mean. Yeah. I enjoyed blue collar more just as a singular. I did experience. too. I did too. And but, I don't want to like shortchange blue collar. Cause I think like, that's also a, a major work. Yes. But, like it doesn't feel as significant as Mishima does. No, no. Well that, that's, that's the big thing. Yeah. You know, it should be Mishima. Who are we kidding? Mishima. Yeah. That's my vote. Here's the thing. I do think it's one of those things where we'll, we'd put in blue collar and then t- we'd wake up tomorrow and be like, fuck. <laughs> right fuck that was yeah wrong. sometimes we get caught up in the heat of the moment yeah. like yeah let's do the unconventional yeah, thing. yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> right 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 and then yeah you get stupid movies in there sure yeah okay Mishima, there Mishima. We go. okay okay <laughs> good old schrader what a kook yeah he is a crazy man what a crazy man i i like him a lot he's, he's a questionable guy but i like him a lot the only reason i still use facebook personally <laughs> my only attachment to facebook at this point good for you Really quick. I just got to get this off my chest because it's late now and we've been recording for three hours. But yes. uh, my little cousin wa- forced me to watch Sonic. <laughs> the first one. Yes. Which is a movie I feel like you vociferously defended on this podcast when it came out in 2020. Sure. Great movie. <laughs> you might be the internet's premier Sonic defender. <laughs> I don't think there's been a louder voice in podcasting on this matter than you. I think so. I mean, you're a mentally ill person. You're an insane person. What's wrong with the movie? It's so terrible. (laughs) I mean, it is so bad. Like, they do the fucking Quicksilver thing from X-Men, but Sonic's in, like, a dive bar. Like, they just ape all the bad things from the X-Men reboots, which are not that great to begin with, but the Quicksilver scenes are at least fun. And they slow it down, except it's, like, weird... CGI Sonic. Hmm. Oh my God. Donut Man? What does he call him? Donut? The Donut King? Donut Lord. Donut Lord. God, I hate you know that. (laughs) I mean, it's just terrible. It's just a terrible movie that you've hyped up for me. Which is like, no one has ever hyped up Sonic to anyone ever. It's so funny. Dude, I got this impression that it's like this... What? It's like this new frontier for like... I'm watching it just hating you the entire time. You're in my head. And my little cousins are getting excited every time. And I'm like, like, oh my God. What is wrong with you? What is wrong with American culture? What is wrong with American culture? What's wrong with you? I really enjoyed the part in the movie... Where uh, Sonic is, uh, uh, where they, they knock James Marsden and the girlfriend off the, the building and he throws the ring and they, he just makes it before they die. That was a great part. <laughs> what did you Who's do? his yellow buddy that shows up in the post credit sequence? Oh, Miles Tails. That's a great post credit scene. Yeah, but who's the character? Miles Tails. Miles Tails. Miles Tails. Tails the Fox. 
Right. Yeah, he shows up like it's fucking Nick Fury at the end of Iron Man. That's correct. That's correct. Through a ring. He had some rings of his own. Right. Sure did. <laughs> There's a greater universe. Like, was I supposed to get, like, excited for that in the theater? What? Were there, like, kids that did, like, standing ovations when Miles Tails showed up? You're not familiar with the oldest gay romance that is Miles <laughs> Tails and Sonic the Hedgehog? Jim Carrey dancing in the evil van was fun. At Jim least. Carrey <laughs> throughout the whole movie. Fun. It's fun. He's okay. <laughs> He's watchable. It's good seeing Jim back doing nonsense comedy. That's good to see. Your perspective on this is so... It's not my perspective. It's, it's so, yours. So, it's not mine. It's so funny to me. Didn't you like nominate it for a bunch of anti-Oscars that year? I gave Jim Carrey. Did you see the sequel to this movie in the theater? No, no, no. Did you see the original in the theater? God, no. I thought you were like a Sonic super fan. I what? like. <laughs> you were talking this movie up, dude. Like it's the next best thing. No. <laughs> I went into it. I'm like, all right. No. When I first saw it. You have to they go You defended this movie hardcore on the podcast. I will not let you rewrite history on this. You just don't get it. You don't get it. I don't get what? Like don't, blue men running around? No, you don't you don't understand Blue Hedgehog, sorry. You don't yes, blue hedgehog, very important. You don't understand the perspective of someone who subjects himself to terrible video game movies frequently. It's like you know that line in Brokeback Mountain. You have no idea how bad it gets. It's kind of like that. And man, the littlest sign of, well, it's competent (laughs) is enough to push any guy like me over the edge. What do I actually think of the movie? (laughs) I think it is the most aggressively mediocre film perhaps ever made. I don't think it's terrible in the way that I think you're describing would I would I watch it again? No. <laughs> I, you sat through the sequel of this. <laughs> for the good of the podcast. <laughs> you sought out the sequel. For the good of the podcast. I will be watching the sequel too. You, you understand? <laughs> yes. I, I have I mean, I have no choice, but my little cousin is really into video it, actually that's Sega. That's not Nintendo, right? No, yeah. But Sega. she's into the Nintendo. I don't think she's discovered Pokemon yet, but she's like really into video games now. Yeah. The ice cream truck came around the other day and there was a Sonic popsicle. Oh. Her eyes lit up. Had to have Sonic. I mean, it was ridiculous. Like, she's in love with this stuff. So I'll sit there with her. I'm trying to get her into the Spider-Man movies. But she's not having any of it? No. She's into Sonic because he runs fast. Partially understand. There's a lot of fart jokes in the movie, too. She found those quite amusing. Oh, they're just hilarious. She likes when Sonic farts. Me, too. Yeah, what did he eat? I forget what the scene. Chili dogs. Chili dogs. He eats yeah. chili dogs because that's what Sonic does in the video games. He eats chili dogs. Yeah, she laughed really hard and she hit me and she's like, because he ate chili dogs. That's what I'm dealing with now. Understand, like, me supporting the film is funny to me. You're destroying my life, though. You understand this? I just think it's hilarious. No, like, like supporting this movie is you, very, very, you are very destroying funny my life because, like, I don't hate the movie in all honesty. Like, I don't hate the movie at all. I can even say, no, like... I, but I am in the position now because I am I'm such a thoughtful older cousin. You suggested Sonic the Hedgehog 2? 
I suggested she's seen them all. I mean, she's seen oh. them all multiple times. Oh, she wants you to watch it. Yeah. But I am forced to now sit there and evaluate it like it's this great work of cinema. You know, like I have to give it. Oh, that's lovely. The consideration. Oh. I have to look for the good in it. That's cute. Like I can't just dismiss it outright. But it's destroying my life, Adam. <laughs> I am doing like I am. I am contorting my body. Oh my god! And doing these mental gymnastics, <laughs> dude. I would be laughing hysterically. to justify how terrible these movies are. So bad. <laughs> and I've got to sit there and be like, "Yeah, Chili Dogs. That's funny." What made you think that I thought that they were great movies? <laughs> I don't know. Just the fact that you that I would suggest cartwheels into the studio that talking about true. how great Sonic was. I don't know. That is a good point. I, I do. You recall. dyed your hair blue and like <laughs> I came in costume. I was wearing the Sonic shirt. I got my my favorite part. My favorite part in uh, Chip and Dale's is Ugly Sonic. Best part of the movie. Oh, actually, it might be the best part of that movie. <laughs> it's the best Sonic thing in any movie. Period. Oh my god! I don't know why you're watching that movie. It's you know what? What parenting is hard. It is hard. It's hard. I'm trying to guide her. I'm I'm really trying hard. I'm trying to get her on the right track, and it's just not taking. You're dealing with like the it, Sonic the Hedgehog, both movies, the one part one and part two, because it's a respectable film. Part one and part two. Um, <laughs> do they flash back to like Sonic's dad's origins in the second one? Do they do like a Godfather two thing? I think they do. They flash back to Knuckles' parents. Knuckles the Echidna, the red guy, voiced by Idris Elba. Sure. Um, no, they <laughs> what, they are the, you know, mindless, dumb summer blockbuster movie for kids. That's what that's what it is. That's all it is. Yeah, I just felt like the first one was, like, so lame, though. Like, it's a fucking road trip movie. There's barely any set pieces. Like I like James Marsden in the movie, and I like Jim Carrey in the movie. And that's it. <laughs> so James Marsden is in that Amazon show Jury Duty. Yeah. Which you might have heard us talk about on Two Cents a couple of weeks ago. And um, there's a gag in the first episode of, of that show where the subject of Jury Duty uh, recognizes Marsden and says, don't I know you from somewhere? And he's like, yeah, I was in Sonic the Hedgehog. And he's like, oh, I haven't seen that one. I heard it was awful. <laughs> <laughs> Cut to, he goes home that night, watches the movie, and then comes home the next, or, or comes back to jury duty the next day and says to Marsden, yo, I owe you an apology because I watched Sonic last night and it was so good. <laughs> that's in the first episode of Jury Duty. That's great. I was dying. Alright, uh, that's it. Uh, we will see you in a couple weeks. God, you're such a fool. <laughs> on, uh, the movie Hall of Fame. Just, oh, until next time, you have a quote, right? Don't you? Yeah, I have a quote. Let me just run get, fast, Sonic. Let me just like, <laughs> hold on. Let me just get into character real quick. Go ahead. Because you were frameable, Julie. You stepped on too many toes. Nobody cared for you. I never liked you much myself.